You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. On today's show, I am welcoming Bridget Jones. She is currently the Director of African American Studies at the Bellmead Plantation Museum in Nashville, Tennessee. Bridget's focuses are historic and contemporary race relations in the United States and the history of chattel enslavement in America. Welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, So tell us a little bit about yourself. I graduated with a degree in history. My focus was Africana Studies. And we're trying to figure out what I could do with a degree in African-American history that didn't involve a classroom um, because teaching, I tried it, really wasn't God's calling for my life personally. Shout out to mm-hmm. the teachers. <laughs> yeah, they have, right. <laughs> they have a big job, man. <laughs> I bartended all through high, I mean, all through college, actually. And it was a great moneymaker, great hustle. But once you graduate from college, that's not what you went to college to do. So um, right. uh, me and my boyfriend actually had an argument one day because I'm a huge fan of plantation museums and historic sites. And he's not, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Plantations are plantations. And um, we right. got into a fight one day because I wanted to go to my current job and tour it. And he didn't, actually. And I was giving him the cold shoulder. We weren't speaking. And he comes in and he's like, get dressed. And I'm like, where are we going? He's like, don't worry about it. Just get dressed. Next thing I know, we're pulling up at Bellmead. Halfway wow. through the tour, I tell the tour guide, I can do this job. I have a degree in history. I'm a recent graduate. And I need something other than teaching and bartending. That's not cutting it for me. About a month later, I was hired. And here awesome. I am today, much later. <laughs> what led you to study history? Honestly, it was the subject that allowed me to take the least amount of math initially. Um, okay. It was, it was my favorite subject, but that was definitely a huge, huge part of the decision. Um, I initially came to college as a communications major. I wanted to be a journalist because information Ooh. has always been my thing, uh, pursuing right. and then like disseminating information and pulling through what does this actually mean? So attending an HBCU, that was definitely one of the biggest things that they promoted was knowing the history of African-Americans that not only graduated from your institution, but other historically black institutions, um, the the first black people to do whatever it was that they did first. Um, those types of things are heavily stressed that you know who these people are and what exactly it was that they did and what school they went to. And just from diving down this rabbit hole of who's important in black history kind of led me to kind of feel inspired by these people who did some really courageous things at some really interesting times in American history. So by the time that I had wrapped up my freshman year of college, I was sold on a career in history. That's awesome. But you knew you didn't want to teach. What did you envision at that point? Did you have anything in mind or were you just thinking, I'm going to do this and then we'll see what happens? Yeah. So I would actually go around telling people that I was going to be a curator at a museum. So I kind of spoke this to myself, essentially. Um, (laughs) I would tell people the Smithsonian, um, Mm -hmm. which most people initially when they say, well, what's your major? And it's like, well, it's history. 
they're like, what are you going to do with that? Teach? And I'd be like, no, actually, I'm going to be a curator at a museum. And people would be like, oh, never considered that. That's that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And I actually ended up, I'm not a curator, but um, I curate some things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm much Mm -hmm. more intrigued on the interpretive side. So I deal more with the information itself how the information is is pushed out to the public, the research, what this means, how do we how do we grapple with this and and then the sociological aspect of it of how has humankind over time dealt with issues such as this one. When I first started at Belmead, I was just a historical interpreter, which is a fancy name for a tour guide. Um so okay. I gave costumed tours of a plantation home, which as a young black woman is definitely an interesting feat. So I would be dressed as essentially a wealthy white woman from the 1870s, 1880s, giving this mm-hmm. tour of this plantation home. And I was able to to gain enough respect from my coworkers and colleagues to where when this opportunity was presented of we're trying to move forward with telling the history of slavery on this site. I was able to kind of be like first up on who are we going to use to make sure this story is told. And I mean, I'm also well, mm-hmm. no longer, but at that point I was the only African-American on the interpretation staff. So how many people are on staff at the plantation overall? I would say at the moment, maybe about 30 for the, as okay. far as the people that would give tours, maybe okay. about 30. And I'm probably and being how, generous. And how many are African-American at this point? Now there are two. Okay. So you were saying that your boyfriend prefers not to go mm-hmm. to plantations. And for you, you were really drawn to that. Mm-hmm. What was it about this outside of you being a historian that drew you? The topic of slavery is something that always intrigued me. Now, when I was a history major in college, that was not my historical focus. That's not what I focused on. I actually focused on the period of time right after slavery. I was very interested in the concept that is the new Negro, which is W.B. Du Bois's theory mm-hmm. on the talented 10th and this black excellence that emerges from these former slaves and children of former slaves. As far as plantation museums are concerned, I've always known what plantation my family was enslaved on. So kind of being aware of that history as a child just always intrigued me to know more about the plantation system in general. And I just love to come Mm -hmm. to these plantation museums and see either if they are telling the story and if they are telling it, how are they telling it? Yeah, because I would imagine that it's totally romanticized and whitewashed, Mm. right? (laughs) At many, yeah, at many, many of these museums, it is. It's very, um, they were happy. Um, We treated them like family. Yeah, you get a lot Mm -hmm. of that. So what is different about Bellmead now that you've been a part of this? Oh, the biggest thing is that we do not whitewash the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I am very proud that I have a board of directors and um, superiors that are supportive of my interpretation and of my my brash method of telling this history because I do a disservice to my ancestors when I don't tell this story truthfully. Not whitewashing the history and then also making sure that we tell this story in a way that is not that doesn't bash white people. That's not my goal. Mm-hmm. It's not to bash white people. My goal is to tell this story with empathy so that when you leave this tour, you felt something and you can now look at yourself in the mirror and address some biases that you may have never wanted to admit that you even had. Mm. What does that look like? Like, what is the tour like? 
How is it designed? Oh, <laughs> so it's um, everyone's tour is different. So there's about five people that give the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm the director of the program. So essentially my tour is kind of like the standard, but everyone has developed their own method of getting this information to the public, which I love the most because you can really see people's personalities shine. But we have the research with pretty much the, the facts. So mm-hmm. these are the facts. This is how many people were here. These are things that happened here. Um, these are the things that have been written to happen here. These are the people that were here. These are their names. This is anything, any interviews that they may have done throughout their time period. Census records, runaway slave as here are the facts. Mm-hmm. And from this, we give these facts to you and it is up to the interpreter to take these facts and create a narrative around it, kind of create a story. So for my personal tour, it's very monologue fashion for about the first 30 minutes um, because I go through uh, runaway slaves, the lost cause mythology, um, the field to house slave dynamic. What does that look like? Is there a better life for a slave? Then moving forward into miscegenation, um, mm. the white and black familial dynamic. How does that look when you have slaves in the family? And then moving upstairs, dealing more with post-emancipation for African-Americans. What does it look like to still work on the plantation that you were enslaved on and now be free? Um, mm-hmm. What are those rules like? What is the pay like? Nannies, children, what is the di- dynamic between um, these white children who are being reared and raised by these black women, uh, these women that are wet nursing and breastfeeding these children, helping to birth these children, and then finishing off, um, kind of bringing it all the way home into my own personal story. And what does freedom look like for people that had never seen it before? And kind of trying to get my audience to see the full circle. See, this mm-hmm. is this is where black people, when I say black people, black Americans, this is where their history started, you know, right. concerning America. And this is where we are. So for a lot of, especially white people, Asians, people who don't have a lot of understanding of black American culture, mm-hmm. they just see what they have on the media and on TV and the negativity. Well, if you're wondering why black culture is the way black culture is, let's discuss it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And let's and try you- to connect these dots and draw parallels into how the system of slavery and the system of Jim Crow segregation, how all of that affected who Black people have become over time as a culture and Mm -hmm. where we can possibly go in the future and what you can do as someone who is not Black to assist in making sure that we all grow to become a better human race of people. Wow. So how long are your tours? My tours are about an hour and 10 minutes. They could definitely be longer than that if it was possible. (laughs) Yeah, because that sounds like so much to pack into one visit. How do you approach that in terms of like, because as you're talking, I'm thinking, what does this look like in actuality? And yes, I will be coming for a tour because now I'm like, oh, I need to I need to come and do this. But in all sincerity, like, what does this look like? Are you really direct in that way? Or is yours more of a form of storytelling, bringing people into this place in their own minds? How do you do that? A little bit of both, actually. So I'm very, very direct. Um, I start off very, very, we start off at the slave cabin, actually. Um, discussing how many people would have lived in the slave cabin, how big is the slave cabin, 
um, where are the rest of the slave cabins and why aren't they there anymore? Um, and then I let people know that our goal is to walk in their shoes for just a little while. So we're going to go through the back door. We're going to take the servants entrances. We're going to take the servants stairs. Um, but our main overarching goal is to draw parallels between their society then and the effects that are still apparent in our society today. Um, so it's a little bit of me coming in being super nice because I don't want you to feel like, Oh God, here's this, this black girl that's going to tell me that all white people are bad because no, that's not my goal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and by the time that we enter into the kitchen and we're reading off these speeches, because I think it's important to, to facts, to stick to the facts is definitely right. an important thing. So we open with mm -hmm. a speech given by um, William Giles Harding in 1871. And he's, He's essentially ad addressing a new free black population. He's 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 saying more so that that white farmers should not hire Irish immigrants. They should hire black people. But his reasoning for why he's advocating for these black people are like, what? <laughs> this is why you feel like they're more appropriate workers. So. It's very telling right. of his own mental state and um, understanding of, of black people where he's at with it. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times you get um, people that'll say things like, well, he was a man of his time. I'm like, well, Frederick Douglass said that what was done before the war has not been made right since the war. So death has no ability to right wrong. Like what was wrong then is wrong now. So let's look at it for what it is. This is what he said. This is how he Amen. <laughs> so let's mm -hmm. see that for what it is. And that's how I open it with his quote. Yeah. And that kind of gives a lot of my, my visitors this feel of like, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of wrong. Like when he starts to talk about how black people are the most um, happy and humble in their humble position. Like, it's like they, this is what they know. He says they're, they have the ability to withstand direct sunlight in a way that white people can't essentially like all these different mm -hmm. nuances of this 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 thought process that black people are these mentally inferior physically superior beings who can work hard but they can't think much for themselves we have to help them um so that definitely mm -hmm. paints a very vivid picture of what we're getting started with who comes on a plantation tour? Mm -hmm. We are definitely about 95% white. And I will say that other 5% is definitely broken up into African-American and possibly uh, Middle Eastern. We have a fair amount of Middle Eastern and also Asians that'll, that'll come and take the tour. Very few Latinos mm -hmm. and um, they're, I, I don't, they have their own history. <laughs> so I don't think that plantation right. history might not be the, the thing that they're focused on right now with some of the things going on in their own culture, which is completely understandable. Um, the speech that I was talking about by William Giles Harding is actually entitled Immigration and Its Effects. So he's anti-Irish immigrants. Mm -hmm. So um, every now and then yeah, I'll get someone of Latin descent to come, but mainly we're about 95% white. Black people don't want to come to a plantation. <laughs> Black people... Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, in their minds, we've left there. Why are we going? I don't want to come take a tour and hear about the good white people that own the happy slaves on the beautiful plantation. It's not the same experience. Right. It's not the same feel. Um, when we go to a plantation museum, 
it does inflict a, a certain type of generational trauma almost to know what people could have went through and did go through on these sites. And then you look to your left and you have some 19-year-old white girl that's like taking pictures in front of the slave cabin, hugging her two best friends as if this is mm. cute, you know, or you have someone here taking their wedding right. photos because they're about to get married on the plantation. And when they booked their oh. wedding here, slavery was the farthest thing from their mind. Um, so black people don't really want to mm -hmm. come and experience that. You don't share the same hurt that I share um, when I see this place and seeing your happiness in a, in a space that, that hurt me so much is, is a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. Well, I think about like when I've traveled to Germany a number of times mm -hmm. and we've been to a number of Holocaust memorials mm -hmm. and a lot of my Jewish friends don't even go to Germany a lot of times. Mm. So, you know, for me going to these Holocaust memorials, I did have family members in the Holocaust, but I'm not Jewish and it wasn't against my entire people. What is your passion? Because for you, you are passionate as a black woman about being in control of this narrative and, and teaching the truth. What mm -hmm. would you like to see more of? I would like to see more black people pursue careers in this field of telling these stories, because ironically, the deeper that I get into black history, I realize that black history is dominated by white people. Mm -hmm. um, the interpretation of this history is dominated by white people, especially on the, the museum side. Academically, yes, there are tons of black academics uh, teaching at colleges across the nation that teach African-American history. But in the museum field, for some very strange reason, there is a lack of African-American representation in telling stories that are Black stories. Um, and that's not to take away from white people that tell the story in a great way. I just feel like there should be more Black people that are pursuing careers in this field. That's probably the biggest thing that I want to promote. Not just telling the truth, but bringing more people, creating that opportunity so that young kids graduating from universities and with, with history degrees don't feel pigeonholed to go teach. There are careers out there for you in the museum field. We just don't know about those careers. And why is that? Because I think that for, for many African-Americans, because we've been so financially impoverished for so long, money mm -hmm. is our major motivator and factor. So we push our children to go pursue careers in fields that we know are going to make them money. Right. Um, there is money in the museum field. It's just higher up the food chain and you may have to relocate one or two or three times um, mm -hmm. <laughs> to find that. And liberal arts as a whole, we're no longer pushing that, that field of study because STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, that's becoming the, the main thing. But my fear is that we're going to become so technical that we lose thought of the feeling that is the human experience. That's what you get from the, the arts and the humanities. Yes. What is one of your most memorable experiences so far doing these tours? Um, recently, I was giving a tour to a group of people, large, I mean, well, fairly large group. It might have been about 10 or 15 people. But about halfway through the tour, an older white woman who is a Bellmead resident, um, Bellmead is a, probably in the top 10 wealthiest zip codes oh, in the wow. state of Tennessee. Um, mm -hmm. Old money. Yeah, absolutely extremely wealthy. Um, but she stands up in the middle of the tour and says that 
well, are we going to see the rest of the plantation? Because I have a master's and I just don't really need this. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I was taken aback to put right. that lightly. But it allowed me to understand that no matter how educated I am and how well I can present this information, there's always going to be some person that does not want to digest what you're putting out there. because. This is the type of history that causes people with bias to address it, especially when you're given this tour by a young black woman with cornrows and a nose ring and hoop earrings. Like, I am so happily, authentically, unapologetically black. I when I don't have braids, I have an Afro. I proudly wear Afro puffs like this is this is black culture. This is who we are. This is what we are. Um, and you're going to have to be okay with, with, with listening to this story from someone that looks like everything that you have been trained to frown upon. That is powerful. So her response was that, you know, she just wanted to move along with it. So how did you respond to that? What did you do? I literally just stood there and smiled because I was so outdone to be completely honest with you. I've never felt so disrespected Mm -hmm. in my life as as a professional. Um, now I'm from the mm-hmm. middle of the ghetto. Like, let's not. <laughs> I've been this this articulate, well-spoken, <laughs> composed person forever. At one point in time, I would have lost my job trying to set her straight. But <laughs> it honestly, I had one of my friend's moms who was actually on that tour. Her mom, her father, and her little brother. And I looked at her mom. And I looked back at this lady and I looked at her mommy and her mom is just shaking her head no the whole time. Like, don't lose your job for this one. Let her go. And I did that about mm-hmm. three or four times. And every time she would shake her head, no, like, don't do it. I just needed some approval. Yeah. Like, give me a reason to lose my job. And um, right. eventually her daughter was like, mom, just go. And she left. She was like, I'm going to go see the rest of the plantation. She left. She called to complain on me the next day. Um, My bosses and they weren't having it. They gave her a refund, told her gone about her way. That is amazing. I mean, I'm just impressed that you have that kind of support. Me too. To begin with, <laughs> right? Because seriously, like the thing I think is like, you know, in the, in the U.S., it's like customer is king. And if customer is upset, we try to make them as comfortable as possible. Yeah. And you're taking on a topic that is so riddled with sensitive points because of people's white fragility, because of, you know, all of these things. And so I'm impressed as all get out that you have that kind of support. Yeah, me too. Um, when I initially. What, so what, what is that about? Uh, when I took on this position, um, I was leery. I won't lie because this is my, yeah. my CEO is a descendant of, um, the family that owned the plantation. Um, oh, so yeah, wow. he just happens to be very, very comfortable with his family history. He knows the history Mm -hmm. and he wants to make sure that this history is told in the fullest way possible, which I have the utmost respect for because you have so many plantation museums that are ran by the descendants of these families that want to preserve the reputation of their family more than they want to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And he happens to be an amazing person who has given me the free will and reign to tell this story in a way that 
is not bashing this family, but literally just telling the truth. I don't have to bash you if I tell the truth because the truth is the truth. Amen. Be it negative or be it positive. Mm -hmm. And so you've been doing this tour for how long? So the tour Journey to Jubilee will be one year old in on June 11th. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's called Journey to Jubilee. And how many people would you say have come through and taken your tour specifically? Oh, gosh. I would say by this point, thousands. Because each tour fits roughly anywhere from 15 to 20 people. You get three tours a day. I have given them as many as five days a week and as little as none a week. So 20, wow. yeah, so I would, thousands by this point. Um, the majority of the connections that I've made have, I've made through giving an amazing tour and people saying, do you have a card on you? Um, can you just write your number down? Here's my card. I'd love to work with you. Mm -hmm. I've realized that um, I'm a much better speaker than I gave myself credit for initially. Um, and I have people say, well, you should do this on Broadway. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that wasn't exactly where I was going with it, but thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely about thousands by this point. Okay. And what is the feedback like? Cause you had this one experience. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you've had more experiences like that, or at least people writing in and complaining. Have you had any of that or not really? Absolutely not. Actually, she's the only negative experience I've had in my almost a year of giving this tour. All of my reviews have been amazing. No. Um, they've been so in depth. I've just at least once a day, I have some random person that's like at the end of the tour in complete tears, um, <sighs> wanting to hug me at the end of the tour or just pull me to the side and have this deep conversation about who they are and where they come from and how they were raised and their views and how it's been shifted from taking this tour. So her one negative in no shape, form, or fashion outweighs the the huge outpouring of positive support that I've gained. My reviews on TripAdvisor are amazing. Um, I've been mm -hmm. able to speak numerous places. Um, I was recently on the news. I have another shooting for the news coming up soon. So her little one comment, I'm not even bothered. Yeah. No, that is so awesome. So then tell me more about people's responses to this. So one of the things that you talked about earlier was this idea of bringing people through story, mm -hmm. through facts, and not in a way where you're condemning or judging, but just stating it very plainly in a sense, mm -hmm. and, and how that brings people to reckon with this history. Yeah. What kind of what kind of feedback do you see in that? Because it sounds like you have a lot of emotional unpacking from other people at the end oh, of, of your day. What is that like? Um, so my goal is to offer you numerous perspectives. So, for instance, when I'm talking about miscegenation and in and, and rape. I come at it from the perspective of, OK, slavery did not just affect the black people. This had to have had some sort of negative impact on the psyche and mentality of white people too. And then I go down the line. Okay. So how must master's wife feel to know that her husband is having an affair with the help. And so since white women also mm -hmm. have no freedom in that time period, they have more freedom than black people do, but they don't have much freedom in their own lane. If she can't come to her husband mm -hmm. about it, who's she going to come to about it? But how must this slave feel if she's not in the position to say no either way? How does she feel to be bearing the brunt 
of someone's anger and aggression for a situation that she has no control over. Okay, well then what if she gets pregnant? Now how must Master's wife feel? And then how must that child feel? What if he has children with his wife? What if she had a husband? I just bring you into all these different perspectives of how you can view this situation. Because I think that's the one thing that we lack perspective. We know the Mm -hmm. facts about slavery, but the human experience is what I think really gravitates to people, the sociology of it. Um, the deeper I get into this, the more that I realize the sociology is becoming a bit of a, a thing for me because to see how humans mm-hmm. interact with one another socially is a very intriguing thing, especially as it concerns race relations. Yeah. Because I mean, essentially over just- time, we've done nothing but perpetuate the same notions down generational lines and true enough, they're watered down. Now, now you can sit in the same room with a black person, but do you still think the same thoughts that they were thinking? A hundred years ago, like, are you still intimidated? Do you still lock your door when the black guy walks by? Do you still clutch your purse when he gets on the elevator? Do you still see the black girl? And the first thing that you think is, oh, she's pretty for a black girl or, you know, all these, these, this subconscious bias that we have to address. We've addressed the outward bias. Nobody's going to, hopefully you won't walk into a restaurant and somebody's like, oh no, we don't do black people here. Mm-hmm. But can I, as I live in Nashville, Nashville's predominantly white. I still know when I walk into a space that is predominantly white, I still get that when I have my Afro, I still get those looks of, oh, wow, <laughs> she's definitely one of one in this room. Like you can, people look, it's, it's but right. in what way and what method and, and how are you viewing me in this moment? Yeah. Well, and, you know, to unpack and to be able to even understand historically, like the root of stereotypes Mm -hmm. and the root of these assumptions Mm -hmm. and things that have been ingrained, it's so challenging in this way. It like for me as somebody who is white and who has been unpacking my own Mm -hmm. for the last like three to five years really heavily, it's amazing to me to to just constantly peel back these layers where it's like, well, yeah, I can remember thinking these things. But I wonder if people even take those thoughts captive enough to acknowledge that they've thought mm-hmm. them, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because racism is tricky mm. and it is ever-changing. Mm-hmm. My goal is that when you leave my tour, you think about yourself, about the last black person that you walk past, about the next black person you're going to walk past. You view them as human, not as the guy with the sagging pants, not as the girl that was talking loud, but as human, human with a different culture, human with a different culture for a reason, human with a different culture for many reasons, that are not always good. Um, My goal is that you leave my tour and you think about it for the next couple of days. I want the things that I've said to sit on your spirit. I pray before every tour mm-hmm. as I'm walking out to the, to the tour mm-hmm. and I pray, you know, God, none of, none of me, just all of you, whatever needs to be said to make sure that I am, impact a heart, impact a mind, impact a psyche. Just help me shift a perspective because I can't change your way of viewing things. All I can do is help to offer Mm. you a new perspective. You can believe what you want to believe, but just look at it from this way for just a moment. And you can go back to however it is that you feel. 
But at the end of this tour, I just want you to leave and think, I never looked at it like that before. Yeah. It's a heavy topic, man. It's a, <laughs> it's a heavy topic. I think. Yeah. But I, I love, I mean, I just, I love hearing this from you and I love, because for me in all honesty, like I would never want to go to a plantation mm-hmm. uh, on a tour. One, I'm not from mm-hmm. the South and I don't have a really good understanding. We have so yeah. many Michigan people whose favorite line is, well, I'm from Michigan. So, I mean, we just don't. And the historian in me is like, well, but the person who's tired of talking, because I've been talking for an hour, is like, yeah, no, totally understand. You're from Michigan. <laughs> you probably hear, I'm from Michigan, so we weren't really a part Absolutely, of slavery, I right? I that a lot. Right. Which is a lie. <laughs> uh, right. But, but that's, I mean, that's another topic and that's interesting. So I'll just, you know, I'll tell you a little bit. When I first started really getting very actively involved in anti-racism work, I started hosting dinner parties and going through these books with mm-hmm. people, like different curriculum to help people unpack and become aware of what whiteness is, their bias, their, you know, their belief systems, and then really encourage them and connect them with resources that would help them to further grow, Mm -hmm. right? And I remember initially being shocked that I was encountering so much racism from white people who I would tell like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm going to be doing this. And that's when I would start to get, you know, the white nonsense and comments and, and, and just all this stuff. And I'm like, why am I, I was shocked because I really had believed and absorbed this narrative that if you're in the North, you're the good guys, you weren't a part of slavery. And I've since learned all sorts of things that say that that's ridiculous, but that's how we pat ourselves mm-hmm. in the North. That's our narrative that keeps us distant from, well, we fought against slavery. And so I'm going through this um, book series for the year. Every month we read a new book. And one of the books I'm going to be reading is called Complicity. Mm-hmm. And it's how the North was complicit in slavery. So this is something that I want to learn and unpack. But, oh, we have, as white people, a whole host of little, you know, pockets of padding that we put ourselves in like, oh, well, I'm the good white person or I'm from the North or I'm not oh, racist yeah. or that, that does. So I always start off and I say to people, every everybody's racist, like white people, everybody's racist. It's not a matter of are you or aren't you? It's where are you on the scale? Let's stop clutching our pearls and let's deal with this right, truth, right. right? And then let's dig into history and to understand the history of our nation is key to understanding yeah, yeah definitely I think um, there's an African term Sankofa and Sankofa yeah yes. you, you never, you've heard of it I love it um, it kind of goes into the thought that it is not taboo or it is not wrong to look to the past and efforts to help you make a better future because the past Amen. is it is your mirror because so much I actually say mm. on my tour that the past has done nothing but bleed into the present because the nation that did not learn from its history has done nothing but continue to repeat it. That's all we've been seeing. If you look at the video of Ferguson, Missouri in 2015, 16, 17 and Birmingham, Alabama in 1955, 56, 57. The only difference is the fashion and the fact that one is in color. The scene itself Mm. is still the exact same because the underlying issues are still the exact same. Over-policing of African-American communities, poverty in African 
African-American communities, lack of education and resources in African-American communities. These issues have not changed since 1866. We went from Mm -hmm. being slaves to being sharecroppers, paid workers to still being maids, still working. Like my grandmother was a maid at one point and her sisters were maids for the same family that they are descended from as the descendants of mulattoes. Like, what is that dynamic like, you know, to know that somewhere down the line, this is your relative, but they're wealthy and you, as light as you are, are their help. And this is your experience. And they know this just like you know this, but it is not to be discussed. So generationally speaking, in the way that you were raised, did your parents or your grandparents talk about this? My parents were pretty vocal about us knowing our history. My grandmothers, I can't ever really remember either of them seriously discussing slavery with us or the history of racism. They would talk about the houses that they would clean and being a maid for a lot of these families. My grandfather would often talk about his lack of trust for white people and the banking system, Mm -hmm. but never really digging into why they felt this way. And then as a nine or 10 year old, you know, you don't really care as much at that point. It wasn't until I got older and starting to hear things from my older cousins that they had heard from my grandmother when she was younger. Um, that's when I began to get this view of what it really was like for the people in my family, which made this story a lot more real. It was like, oh, this just wasn't the, the black lady on TV yeah. on the movie. This happened to my grandmother and my aunts, you know, um, like my mother was in high mm-hmm. school when integration happened. Um, I think she said she was in like the ninth grade when she started getting bused to a white school. And just to, to, to know that she, like this is something that I see on TV and to know that you are alive and mm-hmm. well <laughs> and aware when this legislation was passed. To know, like, my father grew up being the water boy on a cotton plantation in the fi- early 50s. Like, what does that look like? You know, this, it's not that far removed. And I think we have this tendency to no. view it as, well, this was centuries ago. Well, it was actually only a century ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's something that I try to share with people. Because for me, again, like, so white girl growing up in predominantly white spaces, until I was in mm-hmm. high school. And then I had a little bit more diversity in my high school. But even then, a lot of my close friendships really were still with mm-hmm. white people. And I just, I grew up with this sense that I, I really felt like I was an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. But looking back, mm-hmm. I was not at all because I was into, you know, we we all just need to be colorblind. And I was moved emotionally by the ideas during the civil rights movement. I looked up to Martin Luther King Jr. and and just different figures throughout history. But it wasn't until I got to this point of realization when I moved into a predominantly black neighborhood and really started doing a lot of Mm -hmm. deconstruction. And, And so when I had the physical connection with people... And I couldn't say, oh, these were stories that happened Mm. decades ago. And so that makes me really angry when I hear other people say that because I'm like, no, no, that this isn't some far off distant thing. Like you're talking about people that I live with, Mm. that I live near, who I have neighbor, you know, like, but I mean, obviously for me as a white woman, it's like I had to insert myself into this 
to even gain that because we're so segregated. It took me moving here to even realize segregation mm, was this mm. thing. So just to just to share a little of that, like, you know, my total ignorance in that point in space and, that's and what time. I've like doing this tour that yeah. the vast majority of white people are not inherently racist. They may adhere to racist dogma mm. and racist theory, but in most cases it's only because they are ignorant to black culture in in the deeper depth of what that looks like. Um, it's not like if you were to come sit next to me, I wouldn't cringe and go throw my tray away, but I would be a little leery because I just watched this movie where the black guy robbed this random guy for no reason. And I don't personally have any black friends to judge this off of. So I don't have anything to judge you mm -hmm. based off of. Um, so I try to, on my tours, become your black friend by the end of it. Like you didn't have a black friend, you have one now. If you've ever had any question that you wanted to ask a black person that you were too ashamed to ask, this is your safe space. Ask away. Let's clear up some of these misconceptions right now. And do you oh, get definitely. questions? Definitely. I get a lot of questions. Even down to really? well, what, what do black people want to be called? Do you want to be black? Do you want to be African-American? What's the difference? Um, what's the difference between the term slave and enslaved? Um, where does, uh, how do you do your hair like that? Is it your hair? Um, how long have you been growing it? Like all types of things. What are you using your skin? Uh, <laughs> just all the types of, can I touch your hair? All these Oh my gosh, no questions that I get. And, and, and it's literally, I understand, it's coming from a place of sheer curiosity. Sheer curiosity. But do you, are you exhausted oh, by this? Like, I'm where are you at in most that? Of the time. By the yeah. time I get home from work, I want a bottle of wine, and I do say the bottle, not the glass, and quiet. Peace and quiet. Um, right. After you have been the voice, it's like carrying black culture around on my shoulders for eight mm -hmm. hours a day saying, look at black people. We're not all bad. We're not, you know, kind of trying to like be this state for uh, what, what black Americans have been through. And even the ones that are quote unquote considered to be bad. Um, this is why they act the way they act. This is the problems that they face. Like you literally cannot just hold people captive for 400 years and then set them free on Tuesday as if nothing happened. Like that's literally what the Emancipation Proclamation did. There were no real laws or systems mm -hmm. put in place to ensure that people had a level playing field post-emancipation. You literally just set illiterate people free into the world and told them to figure it out. Like what the hell? Hmm. So uh, I would love to get a little dive into history. Uh, and I know I'm all over the place. So let's talk a little bit about yeah. lost cause history and how that plays a role in your tour yeah. and what you talk about and, and just people's response so the lost to that cause is essentially a negationist theory, um, an alternative narrative to the South and Southern history and the role of the South concerning the civil war. Um, so the lost cause promotes the idea first that the civil war was not fought over slavery. Um, the argument that they will use is that the civil war was fought over the state's rights and it was a war of ideals, which it was. That is true. State's rights to do what and to hold what ideals is the bigger question here. Um, mm -hmm. So if we're going to argue state's rights, then let's argue what, the, what, what was the state's rights that they were fighting over. It was the state's rights to hold and own slaves, which were people, human beings. Um, 
the lost cause is the 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 theory that prompted the the start of these organizations like the sons and daughters of the confederacy and the ku klux klan so this this theory that the south was justified in slavery and that slavery was good for black people because we were barbarians anyway who needed to be elevated to be more acceptable in american culture the south was right in what they were doing and we treated them good we fed them we clothed them they were happy here i mean who else was going to do this for them look at the africans they they're dirty mm. they smell you know it's this 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 almost mental warping of themselves into why they were right for what they did um, they begin to erect the monuments to people like Nathan Bedford Forrest and Jefferson Davis. The same ones that we're arguing over today are erected post-emancipation. These monuments begin to go up during Reconstruction, um, which is another argument as to why they should come down. You don't have to throw them away. You can open up a museum yep. specifically for Confederate monuments. Put them in there and let people who want to see them go see them. But they should not be in the center of town for Black people to go and see. That does not... That, we don't look at that statue and go, that was a great man. He really fought for what he believed in. No, that's not mm -hmm. the... <laughs> that's not the thought that we have for that so um the lost cause pretty much promotes that idea that the south was right in what they were doing and and that um losing the civil war was a lost cause like we fought a good fight we lost it but one day the south will rise again and that's kind of where you get this whole let's make america great again like well for certain people when was it ever great you know um th this right this negationist theory that america has always been this happy-go-lucky place where where american pie was served on a silver platter to everyone who sat at the table it hasn't been that way some of us were serving the pie right yeah so so let's talk about this a little bit because the confederate monuments are a huge uh topic of debate still and mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of Northerners who are just ignorant of Southern history in general, mm -hmm. they fall very prey to this history, this rewriting of history. So, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, thank you, YouTube and Internet and all of these things. You've got people getting their degrees on history through, you know, the sons and daughters <laughs> of the Confederacy. And oh, I've, I've spent a lot of time actually talking to these people. And there was a period in time where I didn't have the actual knowledge historically to debate them, but I had to go and I had to research and learn. So when mm -hmm. were these statues by and large erected? And I also want to ask you about the Confederate flag, because once again, you have people in the North who, who promote this idea that the Confederate flag is just, you know, a flag and it's it's uh, heritage, not hate, but they don't really know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So here I am speaking with somebody from the South and an historian. Mm -hmm. So set us straight. Yeah. So the Confederate monuments essentially really began to go up in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, they begin to go up really to to glorify white le Confederate leaders who who they felt they being white Southerners in that time, who they felt had their honor taken because many of these Confederate soldiers were stripped of many American rights. Essentially, the Confederacy was treasonous to the United States government. They succeeded from the Union and became their own, <laughs> right. their own government, you know. Um, many of them were convicted of treason. Many of them went to prison um, for their role in the Confederacy. So these monuments are erected to herald these men who fought valiantly for the belief that was the Southern cause, the Southern way of life. Um, 
that Southern way of life, it just so happened to have been built on the backs of, of African slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, so these monuments go up in the 1870s. They continue to go up until the 1960s. And these monuments in, throughout that time have been erected to essentially keep Black people in their place and knowing we haven't forgot that at one point in time, <laughs> you, my good friend, were at the very, very bottom of the totem pole. Don't yes. you forget it. For people who are listening who have zero clue what we're talking about, there were times historically when there were significant events taking place, desegregating schools and so on and so forth, where these monuments were erected literally by people. The financiers of these monuments were white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So they were put up in place as an actual reminder. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just want to make that clear for some people because there are so many people who really do not know that history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, these monuments until this day remain something that lets you know this is a white space. Mm-hmm. You can come here, but don't forget where you at. <laughs> mm-hmm. In terms of the Confederate flag, people who would who would say that it's it's heritage, not hate. What would you as a Southerner say about that? In my personal opinion, it's definitely hatred because of what that flag is rooted in. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's just some cloth. <laughs> right. What it symbolizes to certain people is where the problem lies. Um, you have had Black people try to take the Confederate flag and own it um, because Black yeah. people are just as Southern as any white person in the South, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um so they, there have been black people that have tried to take the Confederate flag and own it and wear it and, and, and kind of do with the Confederate flag what was done with the N-word. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't translate as well because the Confederate flag was honestly used. That, that was the, the rebel flag. It's still, a, it, see what, what, what I think really makes the confederate flag negative is the intent in which people fly it Mm -hmm. you don't fly this flag for southern heritage you fly this flag because you believe it lets other people know how you feel about the heritage that is the south the heritage that is inherently the south is racist the south Mm -hmm. is racist there's no way around it there's no sugarcoating it the south has been still is and until it actually addresses it will always be racist so therefore the confederate flag the flag of the south is an emblem of a racist history Mm, yeah moving forward here so you you're talking about the fact that we're going to continue to have this if we do not address it and you are single-handedly working your butt off to make this happen within your sphere of influence and you Mm -hmm. would like to see other black historians get into this as well to take back this narrative is there Mm -hmm. any kind of movement toward you know like usually there are organizations and groups and things like that are there any organizations that are are aiming to do this work that you want to see done um you do have um the african-american association of museums um which are comprised of of african-american and white historians who work diligently in, in, in the field that is African-American history and making sure that these stories get told. 
And then you just have people that do it on their own. Um, Henry Louis Gates is deaf doctor. Let me put some respect on his name. Dr. Gates yeah. is definitely um, a pioneer in this field for the interpretation and study of African-American history. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have, of course, the political leaders and um, uh, the people on the local level. That's where you come in with your, even though they're national to me, essentially they were local when they rose into fame. These are your Al Sharptons and your Jesse Jacksons. Um, and then you have the the new, what I would consider to be the new school. These are the people who are now um, heading up programming at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. You have um, Tyree Boyd Pates, who's uh, doing a lot of great things over at the California African American Museum. Uh, Shakita Patterson, who does the United Street Tours here in Nashville, myself at yeah. Bellevue. Uh, yeah, um, it, it's it's tons of people. Ashley Bachnight, Dr. Ashley Bachnight, who's doing a lot over at the Hermitage, which is Andrew Jackson's home. So there is definitely a new school in in African-American history professionally. We just got to increase those numbers. That's awesome. One of the things that I think about is how does our nation deal with our history? How do we deal with reparation? How do we deal with reconciliation or mm -hmm. should we say conciliation? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think about Germany and how they dealt with rebuilding and reparation and reconciliation post Nazi. Mm -hmm. And I see such a vast difference between our nation and that nation mm -hmm. and such a lack of uh, humility and desire to take the necessary steps toward this. But there are people like all of the people that you've mentioned, yourself included, who are taking these steps and, and moving this forward. What mm. would your hope be or what would you like to see either uh, just within a movement of the people? Mm. What can people be doing? Mm. Um, I, I mean, obviously, we would love for government to do things. Right. But uh, but like, what is your thought on that? Let's talk people and then let's talk government or or maybe for you, you're just like, look, this has got to be a movement of the people. And this is what I want to see happen. Or, or you believe that flows into government as well. Like, what is your thought on that as sort of a closing thought? Yeah, no, I definitely think this is going to be a movement by the people. So if we were to look at this from the historical perspective of the government, we are the people, the government are mm. the people. We elect yep. the people that speak for the people into the government. So our goal should one be making sure that we are honest with one another. We, the people should be honest with the people, each other. Mm -hmm. We have to address our bias to one another. We have to address our hatred to one another. We have to address our fear to one another. We have to first be able to address these things on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And then once we begin to heal in our neighborhoods, in our cities, we can take that to a city level. Once the black community comes to terms with the issues that face the black community, we can then come together with hopefully white people that have begun to face the issues that, that plague the white community in relation to how these two communities play off each other, because we've been pitted against each other throughout time. And then we have to then take these citywide issues and say, okay, well, as a city, we want to be better. 
we want to do better. So then you have to elect people that hold these interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And then you elect these people into higher offices and higher offices until the people at the top of the totem pole are representative of the people at the bottom. So I think this is a, it's a chain reaction. We have to reconcile with one another before we can expect the people at the top to do anything. Because as much mm. as we hate to admit it, this is a government that's ran by money. And even the Bible tells you that not money, the love of money is the root of all evil. So as long as we're right. placing money and material gain above having a genuine, loving human experience, we're going to forever be running around in the same circles because the same thing that kept slavery going is the same thing that's keeping us from owning why this issue is still plaguing us today. Money. It's too many of us to pay. Right. Right. So the, and, and reparations is uh, heating up again as a conversation. Yeah. And in a way, honestly, that I've not seen before, but it could be because I just have way more black friends who are speaking about this and Mm -hmm. it's an election year, but Mm -hmm. have you noticed talk about reparation at the level that it's at lately? No, never at this level. Um, It's been talked about, especially in the black community. We joke about it all the time. Um, I even joke about mm-hmm. it at my job. Like anytime I get paid, I joke. I'm like, I hear my reparations. Um, <laughs> everyone thinks it's funny. Um, but <laughs> my little joke. Uh, but anytime they buy me a meal, I'm like, here are my reparations. Thanks, guys. Right. Um, but no, I've never seen it on this level before. But I think the issue is the the lack of knowledge. So you can't make up for the knowledge and experience that you've neglected black people with money. You can give mm-hmm. them money, but if they have no sense of, of, of money management, then they're still in the same boat. How about you invest in their school systems? How about you invest in their neighborhoods? How about you invest in their nutrition? How about you invest in their businesses? How about you invest in their um, in the, the housing market? How about you invest in health care? How about you invest in the things that are going to make for a better human experience for black people and then give them the opportunity to make their own money? Yeah. Because you can cut me a thousand dollar check today because that's about what it's going to boil down to when you break up whatever black people are owed 900 million ways. Um, right. When you have somebody that has, has, hasn't paid rent in two months because they can't find a job because they have four felonies on their record because they have three kids because they didn't have the proper education to tell them that you should wear a condom, the proper education to tell them that you should continue to get an education when you don't have a mother or a father because your mother is working and your father is working or one parent has a drug problem and the other parent, you see all of these bigger issues contribute to the demise of black culture. So until Mm -hmm. we address the root of the problem and stop trying to just, well, let's just pay them. No, that's not the answer. Mm. the issue is much deeper than that you can't keep addressing the symptom you have to address the disease and that disease is lack of knowledge well thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about your passion for education and truth telling and storytelling and the work that you're doing as a historian at the Bellmead Plantation. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I think this is amazing. I'm in love with the show and the title. Speaking of racism, I think that speaks loudly. Um, So keep any way that I can help man. keep pushing this agenda because we need allies on your side to fight the good fight and just know that people on my side, people with my mentality, we are thankful for your allyship. We 
think that that is, that is exactly what needs to be happening. Well, I appreciate that. All right. So Bridget Jones, thank you so much again for coming on. And anytime you want to come back on, you let us know. And for anybody listening, if you ever go to Bellmead Plantation for a tour, Um, ask for Bridget. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you. 